Well, if you've ever done any mountain climbing, and I, I hope you have, if you've not climbed a mountain, you should put it on your list of things to do before the end of the year. Um, you, if you're around service very long, you know that I'm an enthusiast of mountain climbing. I enjoy doing it with my brother every year and uh, usually get to go with the men in the fall and, and other trips that come available. But I don't know about you, but whenever I'm on a mountain, whenever I'm climbing up a mountain, I always ask this question, why did I decide to do this? Particularly if, like last summer, where you and your brother decide to hike up a mountain because there's water on top of the mountain, but you really don't have any where you are, so you keep climbing up and up, and you're thinking, why did I let my brother talk me into climbing up this mountain? Well, I want to think about that question a few moments this morning because because I, I, I want to think about this transfigured mountain that Jesus goes to, probably Mount Hermon, which is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. As you're standing at Galilee and you're you're right there at sea level or just just below sea level, actually, you look up to the north and there you see Mount Hermon, snow capped on top. It, it's it's a legit mountain. I'd I'd love to climb it. I've never climbed it, but I'd love to. But that is probably where Jesus took the disciples, maybe another mountain, Mount Tabor, but, but we think probably Mount Hermon. And he takes them up here. But the question is, why? What on earth could Jesus want to bring these disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration for? Well, Luke luckily tells us in his account, you know, you know that Matthew, Luke, and Mark, all three describe this event. Luke tells us that he has gone up there to pray. Jesus took his disciples with him, the three, up to the mountaintop to pray. He takes the three, the three amigos, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and Peter, the rock. Now, they were the inner core. You know they're the inner core because they all had nicknames, right? If you really like somebody, you give them a nickname. Just ask Big Toe over here. Or, or Buzzsaw. Where's Buzzsaw? There's Buzzsaw over on this side. So He can explain that to you later. That's Justin Smith, by the way, for the, for the record. You're welcome. <laughs> but when somebody really loves you, they give you a nickname. And Jesus had given these three the nicknames, and he carried them with him to the top of the mountain. And it's on this mountain that Jesus is transfigured. The scriptures say that he, he, he comes to light and, and, and radiates with a, a, something pure white than you could possibly bleach it with a, a radiance, a, a fire almost that seems to be emanating from him. He is transfigured before them. It reminds us of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of the Ancient of Days, a way of referring to God the Father. And in this vision, it says that, that, that the Father is like glorious light that no one can possibly duplicate. And he, he, is, he has white hair. I'm working on that part. And, and, he's, and, his, and his, he shines with a brightness that no one could possibly duplicate. Well, here is Jesus transfigured before these disciples, this inner core for them. I want to suggest to you that, yes, Jesus is there to pray. Luke would not have told us a lie. He's there to pray. He's there to seek guidance. He's there to seek strength. Remember that Jesus is just about to head to Jerusalem to face all that will happen to him through his passion and death. So he is going there to be strengthened. He's just proclaimed that to his disciples, but he's also going there for their encouragement. 
that he might encourage them in the face of what they're going to go through. The way chapter 8 ends is Jesus saying that I must go to Jerusalem and I will be arrested, handed over to the authorities, and killed. But on the third day, I'll rise again. And that's that famous passage where Peter rebukes Jesus and says, it never happened. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and says, you're not, you don't have the things of God in your mind, you have the things of man. And, and, and basically, you, 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 Peter, you can't, you can't do this. This is the, this is the will of God. I'm, I'm going forward. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is encouraging them. At the end of that passage, at the very, very end of chapter 8, Jesus actually says, if you're ashamed of me in this world, in this adulterous and sinful generation, then when the Son of Man comes, he will be ashamed of you. When he comes in the glory of the Father with all the angels. And I think that's an important thing to note. Right before this passage, Jesus says, I'm going to come in the glory of the Father. I would suggest to you that what we see on the Mount of Transfiguration is Jesus coming in the glory of the Father, like the Ancient of Days, with a brightness that no one can duplicate, with something whiter than you could possibly bleach it. This is Jesus coming. And he shows these disciples this vision to encourage them, to strengthen them for what's ahead. Now, with him is Moses and Elijah, and they're talking to Jesus. We know, again, from the other gospel writers that they're discussing Jesus' exodus, his departure from this world. If you think about it, Moses had a pretty amazing... Moses was buried by God in a grave on a mountain that no one knows except God. That's where I want to be buried. Just in case you're writing it down, just go ahead and put that. A mountain that only God knows... And, of course, Elijah, he's carried to heaven in a whirlwind, right? With the, the, you know, the fiery chariots and all that stuff we sing about in the old gospel song. So both of them had traumatic departures. Jesus is going to have a dramatic departure. So he's there, they're there to, to speak with Jesus about that. Now, isn't that comforting? Isn't it comforting that here's Elijah who's been dead 600 years and Moses long dead beyond that? And here they are with Jesus on the mountaintop the hope that there is life beyond death, the hope that we will be with the Lord eternally, we'll be in his presence. I love, and I don't know if I can verify this, but the passage we read, the first Kings, where it says the word of the Lord spoke to Elijah on the mountaintop, and and, and then he begins to say, I've come to see the Lord. I I want a vision of the Lord, Elijah says, I just wonder if that's the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Word of God that John talks about in John 1, speaking, who are you, what are you here for, Elijah? He's asking that before and after the great events that happen. You see, both Elijah and Moses also have powerful encounters with the living God on mountaintops. Mount Sinai for Moses, Mount Horeb for Elijah, Very different circumstances, but they seek God out in these mountaintop experiences. We've got our Dynamos folks, some of our Dynamos folks there. I recognize some of the team here today. We we go away for these incredible retreat weekends. They have come to the mountain, Elijah, Moses, the disciples, with Jesus to have an encounter with God, just as Elijah and Moses did in the Old Testament. Moses, you remember, 
goes up on the Mount Sinai and he receives the commands, but meanwhile, the people are rebelling and they've turned to idolatry. They've created a golden calf and they're worshiping the calf and Moses just totally loses it. He crushes the calf and he makes them drink the, the gold dust. I mean, I mean, just he just goes off on them. I mean, it's, it's really crazy what he does. And, and he comes back up on the mountain and God at one point says, you know, I'm just going to destroy them and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses is like, God, your reputation, you can't let your reputation fall under that sort of scrutiny. Come on, you don't, please, have mercy upon them. Which is funny because Moses didn't have a whole lot of mercy when he was, when he was beating the heck out of them and down below. But, but he says, have mercy on them. And, and then he says something really important. Moses says, God, if you're not going to go with us, then let's just call it off. If your presence won't be with us, then what's the point of going? And the Lord says to Moses on the mount, on Mount Sinai, my presence will go with you. I will be with you. And then later when they establish, they create the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, they build this incredible temple and the Shekinah glory falls the Shekinah glory, the, the glory of the Lord f- comes down on the temple so powerfully that we're told that the, that the priests, that the Levites can't even go into the temple because the, it's just palatable. And it's the, the heaviness of the, the majesty and the glory of the Lord. That word glory means heaviness. It's the, the glory means weightiness. That's why C.S. Lewis will write a book called The Weight of Glory. The weight of glory, the heaviness, the the majesty, the the brilliance, the light, the Shekinah glory falls on the temple. It's the same same Shekinah glory that that was with the the children of Israel in the desert when they were being kept away from the army of Pharaoh and the the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. That's the same Shekinah glory that was was protecting and watching over the children of Israel. You you see it throughout the the Old Testament, but it it comes upon the, the... the, the temple in 1 Kings 8. Now, Elijah, he had a different reason for going to the top of the mountain. Uh, if you re- recall, Elijah had gone to a different mountain, Mount Carmel, and he had, he had battled 450 of Baal's prophets. Baal, the false god, really a demonic force. People were worshiping like a god. And, and Elijah does an amazing job. He, he defeats 450 prophets. He he makes fun of them, you know, he, you know and, he, and he, he calls down fire from heaven and consumes the sacrifice to God, God Almighty. And, and then he has the prophets judged and killed, wipes out these, false, these prophets of Baal. But then the wicked king, King Ahab, he, he looks at Elijah and he says, you're dead, I'm going to kill you. And all the strength and all the power of the Lord, it's like it rushes out of Elijah. And he runs, we're told, and he hides. Fear overtakes him. He goes to, the, he goes to a cave and he, on, on Mount Horeb and he says, Lord, I'm the only one left. And he seeks God in that mountaintop. And, and so God reveals himself in this, just what we read earlier. And, and in that reading, it's, it's God doesn't come in the... There's a, a wind that's so strong that it actually breaks the rock, we're told. That's a powerful hurricane. 
That's a powerful tornado. And then there's an earthquake, and the earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire that comes down, but God is not in the fire. And then we're told in the scripture we just read, that Jamie read earlier, that, that there's a st- still small voice, a whisper. And Elijah knows that it's the voice of the Lord, and he puts the cloak around him, and he goes out, and God speaks to Elijah and says, dude, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 of my servants who have not bowed the knee. And he tells him what to do, and he calls Elisha, who's to be his, you know, the one who follows after him. I don't know why they're Elijah and Elisha. Why couldn't they think of different names? Because they're so close, but... But Elijah comes first, and Elisha is his disciple, and then will take over for Elijah. But on that mountaintop, God made it clear to Elijah that he is the still, small voice that will speak, that will direct him. So these are these powerful encounters. Both of them them are there with, with Jesus, and appropriately... Peter says, okay, I know what to do here. We've got a whole Old Testament witness to what you do when the Shekinah glory falls upon a place, particularly when you've got not only Jesus, the Messiah, but you've got Elijah and you've got Moses. He says, I'll build tents. It's a very worshipful thing to do, right? I mean, we give Peter a hard time. We think he's, you know, taking things under his own control and, you know, oh, Peter, you're always putting your foot in your mouth. But really, it's very appropriate because Peter says, we'll build these tents, we'll build booths so that people can encounter, we mortal men can encounter God in the Shekinah glory. I mean, after all, when Moses, after he'd been on Mount Sinai, he comes down, they have the tent of meeting, Moses would go there, the the Shekinah glory would come upon the tent, and then people would come out and they would would inquire about their lives. God would give them direction. It's, It's you come to God in his holy place. He's really on, he's on par. He's doing good. Problem is, God is changing things. And so all of a sudden, poof, Elijah, Moses, gone. This kind of glory, gone. And they're left with only Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but if you say I'm left with only Jesus, I feel pretty good. Right? I mean, okay, if, you know, the Shekinah glory was nice, Moses and Elijah was nice, but if I have to be left with one, leave me with only Jesus. And that is exactly what happens for Peter and James and John. They're alone on the mountain, and they hear the voice of God, the Father, and what does the Father say? This is my well-beloved Son, just like it is baptism. Remember a few weeks ago, I preached on the baptism? This is my well-beloved Son. But instead of saying, in whom I'm well pleased, which he had said at the baptism, what does he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. No, you don't have to go to the mountaintop and see the Shekinah glory to to hear that God will go with you in his presence. You You don't have to wait for the still small voice after the the wind and the earthquake and the fire. You have Jesus with you, the Father says. 
listen to him. Jesus will go with you. He's going to go down that mountain. We do dynamos retreats and and other sort of experiences, camp and things, and they're mountaintop experiences, but we always have to do that going home talk. You guys know that. You dynamos guys know that. And most of you guys, Young Life Camp, the going home talk, right? The worst talk to have to give, but the one that is so necessary because we can't live on the mountaintop. But the good news is that Jesus goes with us. We're left with only Jesus. But he's more than enough. Listen to him as you go down the mountain, disciples. Listen to him. Now, I'm not the sharpest bulb. I'm, I'm a little slow sometimes, but I think I've pinned down the application for today's sermon, okay? Are you ready for this? Listen to Jesus. I think that is our application, right? I mean, if we miss that, you know, the Father saying from heaven, listen to him, I think we should listen to Jesus. The question is, how do we do that? That's the the work of discipleship is learning to listen to Jesus. As a matter of fact, fundamentally, I would say, if you were trying to share with your child who's your disciple or your best friend or your spouse or somebody, a coworker, or wherever it is that you're trying to be a discipler of Jesus to that person, what your goal is is to, to cultivate in them the ability to listen to Jesus for themselves, to hear him speaking through the power of his Holy Spirit, to hear him speaking to their lives and begin to direct them. It's, it's, it's easy, but it's not easy. Well, because there's so many other competing sounds And if we're going to listen for Jesus, I think we have to remember that we have to eliminate the noise around us. Once a famous pastor went to an older mentor, a man of God, a giant of the faith, and said, how do I obtain spiritual maturity? And the the older mentor said, eliminate hurry in your life. The guy's like, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Eliminate hurry in my life. All right, what's the next thing? And the mentor said, eliminate hurry in your life. He says, it's the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth thing. Eliminate hurry. Now, now I had to rush home to pick up Jody to bring her back to church. Was here five minutes late. James graciously led the first part of the service. There are times where we have to go fast, you know, or we have to hurry. But the point is that our lives can be consumed with hurry. And learning to examine, why is that? Why do I always feel hurried? What, what's going on in me? What's this insecurity? What's this drive that makes me constantly run to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing and always be behind and always be trying to accomplish more than I can possibly do in a block of time? What is it? Do I know myself to be a daughter of the king, a a son of the king? Do I know myself to be uh, one who is greatly beloved of the Father? Or am I trying to prove myself? If we're going to listen to Jesus, we have to eliminate the noise around us, at least for times in our lives. This is solitude. This is the discipline of silence. This is the discipline of slowing. It's one of the things that I'm 
the Lord is, I think, teaching me in this period of my life is slowing me down, allowing me to, to accomplish less and to worry less and to try to do with him the things I can accomplish. Solitude, silence, slowness. I know you, many of you, you, you live challenging lives, children, jobs, parents, careers that are demanding. You have all sorts of things that are pulling at your time. But I implore you, find time for silence and slowness and solitude. And then in those times, listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Quiet the noise from without, quiet the noise within. Now, here I don't mean somehow that you just cut off your life and you don't think about your life at all. But Brother Lawrence, many, many centuries ago, said we needed to learn how to practice the presence of Jesus in our lives. So what I'm suggesting is that as we walk through those stressful times and we get mad like Moses was with the children of Israel or whatever the situation is, can we invite Jesus into those places and say, Jesus, what's going on here? Something else the Lord is teaching me to do. What's going on here, Lord? Why does this make me so mad? What's behind this anger? What's behind this stress? Lord, what would you want to teach me in these moments of my everyday, ordinary life? Let me invite you into this situation. I think if we're honest, we... we we have our time with our Lord and we leave our Bible at the nightstand and we try to leave the Lord there too. And we go out into the world and we think it's all us. It's all on us. And I'm as guilty as any of you. Listen to Jesus it means taking him into those places that we would otherwise want to leave him behind or be inclined to because of the hurriedness of our lives, because of our own human instinct. Well, this is, this is a process. This is a discipling process. Last week I talked to you about discipleship, that discipleship is a lifelong endeavor. But we have to begin, and we have to begin intentionally. If I had to write a bumper sticker, I would say, we are sometimes so busy to do stuff for God when really God wants to do something in us. That would be a really good bumper sticker, so. It's kind of long for a bumper sticker. Let me try it again. We want to do for Christ, but he wants to do something in us. But we can't, we don't allow him to do that unless we have times of quiet, solitude, silence, prayerfulness. Slowness. But I have great news. Lent is coming. <laughs> Next week. Next Wednesday. We have 40 days of focusing on these very things. Yes, this Wednesday. That's next Wednesday. The next Wednesday they were going to have is this Wednesday. So we, we get to, we enter into Lent. We enter into this time of 40 days of Saying, Jesus, teach me to listen. I hope you'll journey with me through that. Last thing. 
I, for a long time, I preached this passage, this transfiguration passage, and I saw it as, as Jesus really reviewing who he is to the disciples. It's like pulling back the, the, the face, you know, the human face and saying, see, I'm the glory of God, and then going back in, you know. But as I study the scripture more and more of this transfiguration, I realize that, that what Jesus is revealing is the glory of the Father, which is what he says in the end of chapter 8. The glory of Jesus is at the cross. The glory of our Lord is in his death and resurrection. The fullness, the weightiness of who he is, the Son of God, the incarnate Son, is at the cross. And Jesus is still taking the disciples there. He reveals the glory of the Father, but he goes to Jerusalem to be offered as a sacrifice that he might be revealed the glory of the Son. And here's the cool part. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we get to bear that glory to the world. We get to bear that glory. The glory of Jesus Christ, crucified, died, buried, and risen on the third day. We glorify that to the world. Now, Paul says we carry it in jars of clay, lest anybody think it's us and not the Lord. But we get to bear that. We get to make him known. We get to make him known. But we must not forget we know him through learning to listen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.